Hi, I'm Lynn. And I'm Jan. Welcome to the Lamplighters Podcast. Lamplighters is a community that encourages women to grow in our faith through the study of God's Word. And we are grateful to be on the journey with you this year as we travel through the Psalms. Now, last week, we discussed the sense of being lost and also being found. Mm -hmm. And this week, we have our special friend, Laura Tuma, with us again to guide us through some uncomfortable topics like anger and injustice. And Laura, I feel like I need to apologize to you because it seems like we are always pitching the hard ones into your court. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jan. You don't know how much I appreciate that. I know. (laughs) Anger and injustice are uncomfortable topics. It's important to note that they can motivate us to action that can be constructive or destructive. Mm. And we'll be talking about that. The Psalms we'll study today are also uncomfortable. And more than that, they can also be confusing, disorienting, and even unsettling. So Jan and Lynn and everyone out there, if you had a hard time making sense of these Psalms, you are not alone. (laughs) Which is why I was glad you were coming today. (laughs) And as you guys know, we had to delay recording this podcast because COVID made a visit to my household. And then we had that little ice storm you guys might remember. Mm -hmm. So back then, before all those things happened, I had put together my thoughts about these Psalms, but I was looking at them outwardly instead of inwardly. Mm -hmm. So my thoughts were mostly objective and academic, just as I prefer them. (laughs) Yes. But with that extra time, I could no longer avoid delving more deeply into anger and injustice. And I have to tell you, the more I did, the more uncomfortable I got. Mm And the more these psalms started to make sense. So here we go, taking a stop at anger first. Mm. Anger is a natural response to a perceived wrong. Mm. We get angry over all sorts of things, from being cut off in traffic to being ignored to being actively undermined. Just the other day, I got angry at my husband's tone of voice when he answered a question (laughs) I asked. It was only his tone, and it was only a one-word answer. And it was not an ugly word that he answered, I should hasten to say. (laughs) But the way he said that one word made me so mad that I walked upstairs to get away from this situation. I just didn't trust myself to respond the way I wanted to in that moment. So my brain was busy whirring. I was thinking, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't deserve to be talked to like that. What's wrong with him? His tone is unjustified. In my mental space, I was the victim of injustice. And of course, my anger was justified. Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, I don't come off very well in that story, and I'm truly not proud of how I handled it. I was defensive, self-focused, and judgmental. I was not prayerful or reflective. I think you're describing parts of my life, Laura. (laughs) Well, I hope I'm describing a lot of many people's lives, (laughs) because I think almost everyone can relate. Sometimes anger builds slowly. And sometimes it just pops out suddenly and takes us by surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, But when anger becomes a habit, it is hugely Mm. destructive to our health, our enjoyment of life, and relationships. Mm -hmm. No one aims to become an angry person. Right. Mm. But as women and as Christians, I think we often feel guilt or even shame Mm -hmm. that we get angry. Anger is a normal human emotion. We can't escape it, but we do need to learn how to handle it. And I'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Mm. Well, I think um, when we talk about this, we need to talk about righteous anger. Absolutely. And the first thing to note is that the only true righteous anger is God's. 
right? Um, we, <laughs> we can strive um, to have righteous anger, but um, I'll turn to our perfect example for this, Jesus Christ. He showed righteous anger several times, if you remember, um, most famously in the temple when he turned over the tables, um, because there was stuff going on there that shouldn't be going on there, and it had been going on, and it was going to continue to go on. You know, the, they were, people were being exploited, and that is what righteous anger is. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to feel justified, as you just described, Laura, when we uh, feel anger, um, and I do often, and it's only when I calm down that I can kind of go, wait a minute, mm. that's, that's, not, that's not right. I, I was the one who was wrong. So if we look at it from a Christian perspective, righteous anger is any anger that we have at the things that oppose Christ and his image. It doesn't have anything to do with me, how I'm feeling personally, you know, if I feel like I've been wounded or whatever. It really only has to do with um, Christ and his image. Lynn, you are, you are so correct about that. Righteous anger is not about us, but it is about the suffering we see in the world mm-hmm. and how, it, how suffering in Christ um, affects us and can move us to do some really constructive actions. Mm-hmm. But like you, I more often experience anger that's focused on what is happening to me right. rather than the suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. Reflecting on anger in my own life helped me approach these psalms with a more open attitude and an open heart. Before that, as I mentioned, I was stuck in head mode rather than heart mode. So one good thing did come from my head study, and it's a new vocabulary word, Lynn. Oh, good. Yay. 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 <laughs> and the vocabulary word is imprecatory. Psalm 35 and Psalm 109 are imprecatory psalms. An, an imprecation is a curse that invokes misfortune on someone. Imprecatory psalms are those in which the author calls down calamity, destruction, and God's anger and judgment on his enemies. Simply put, these are cursing psalms. They are not supposed to be comfortable for us. Mm. (laughs) So just to give a little context, there are about a dozen imprecatory psalms that span the entire book, beginning with Psalm 5 and going all the way through Psalm 140. So in other words, the plea for God to wreak judgment on enemies is intertwined throughout the Psalms. Mm. There are many other examples of imprecation in the Old Testament, and most of them deal with curses that will befall Israel for being disobedient to God. That is, the imprecation is delivered as a warning Mm. rather than as a plea for God to strike down enemies. The imprecatory Psalms are different. In Psalm 35 and 109, David is directly asking for his enemies to suffer rather than warning them what could happen if they don't follow God's law. Now, we look at Psalms from this side of the cross, and we recognize that David gives us a glimpse of Jesus. That can cause us to struggle to understand how David can pray about an enemy, as he does in Psalm 109, verse 7. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. Wow. While Jesus repeatedly encourages us to look, to love, and to pray for our enemies, there seems to be a conflict between seeking revenge which, by the way, was forbidden under Old Testament law, and the New Testament command to love our neighbors. Scholars have studied this apparent contradiction since the days of the early church, as you would not be surprised to learn. Mm -hmm. They floated a bunch of theories that have not stood the test of time, but basically have come up with a theory that honors the wholeness of Scripture, which is that it is all in God's hand. 
Well, I can resonate, Laura, with what you said about keeping all these topics in our heads, because I do that. It is a way of distancing myself from the issue and of controlling it. I think if it's in my head, I control it, right? Well, that is a joke. But part of the problem we have with these uh, psalms is that we aren't Hebrews, and we don't have their attitude toward sin, toward injustice, toward justice, right? The ancients took sin way more seriously than we do. Um, C.S. Lewis was reflecting on these same issues, and he wrote this. We don't hate sin enough to get upset at the wickedness and godlessness around us. We are bombarded by so much evil and violence. We've gotten accustomed to the darkness. Now, the Hebrews, on the other hand, took right and wrong very seriously, and they saw all wrong as ultimately an affront against God. That's very different than our culture, because in our culture, right and wrong are now personally defined, which, of course, conveniently lets us all off the hook. Mm. So there's a little bit of difference between God's righteous anger and our anger that we feel. Um, God's anger against sin and his hatred of evil isn't emotional. It's judicial, and that is a huge difference. For us, anger is always emotional. Mm. For God, it's judicial. And what I mean by that? It's an expression of his holiness. Uh, As God's anger is always righteous, if you guys have pointed out, and ours rarely is, um, these Old Testament imprecations reflect the holiness of God and his faithfulness to his covenant promises. They remind us what is at stake in a sinful world. Think about it. If God were not angry about sin and evil, what would that look like? I mean, he wouldn't be God, for one thing. And for another thing, we wouldn't want to belong to a God like that, right? These psalms point out our instinctive longing for justice. In other words, we yearn for God to set all things right, to heal the brokenness in ourselves and in the world. And of course, God's ultimate answer to this longing is found in Jesus Christ. Oh, Jen, absolutely right. There are a couple of points I want to emphasize as we get into these psalms. First, imperfect, though he was, and David was imperfect, he was a man after God's heart. We repeatedly see his personal character revealed, and we repeatedly see that he does not indulge in personal revenge, even though he was often provoked. Mm. Next, David was guided by the Holy Spirit in composing the Psalms, which is attested to several places in the New Testament, including in Acts, when Peter addresses the Sanhedrin. Mm. And third, psalms of imprecation were part of communal worship and were intended to focus everyone's attention on God's holiness, His promises, and His faithfulness, as you just said, Jan. Mm. Um, And finally, the word imprecation comes from the Latin verb precari, which is the same root word as prayer. When we think of imprecation, or literally cursing, as being rooted in prayer, it can completely change our attitude. Well, Laura, as you know, I'm always happy to have a good definition so that I know I'm understanding what we're actually talking about. And if we think of all of our conversations with God as a form of prayer, then it would follow that even cursing would fall into that category. I mean, it seems bizarre, but it's conversation with God, right? Um, I will confess that I've never thought about it this way before. And 
with this shift, I think the shift in understanding, I think I can get a better grasp of what you're saying. I'm going to have to work on it a while. (laughs) This whole study of Psalms has opened my eyes to the different facets of our conversation with God. Mm -hmm. Cursing had never entered my mind until studying these Psalms (laughs) as being a legitimate and acceptable way of addressing God. So it is an unfolding awareness as we continue to read these Psalms. Well, so are we ready to get a little more specific with today's Psalms? We are. Okay. Um, So let me do a little bit more groundwork about imprecation before we actually jump in. Okay. It's helpful to know that the imprecatory Psalms build in intensity throughout the book. So Psalm 7 at the beginning is the mildest. Psalm 109, which we're going to talk about, includes 30 direct curses, which is just a gigantic number. Um, Psalm 35 falls in the middle. We don't know when this psalm was written, but it may have been during the time when David was being pursued by Saul. The wording of verse 1 is almost identical to what David said to Saul in 1 Samuel 24. So in these first few verses, David calls on God to be his advocate in the legal sense, which is very much what Jan mentioned a moment ago about anger being judicial for God. Mm -hmm. God is always the ultimate judge. So David calls on God to be his advocate as well as to be his defender and his protector. So he, he calls on both the defensive and the offensive weapons, which would be very familiar to David, the military leader. Yet he also seeks reassurance in verse 3, say, which says, Say to me, or in some other translations, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. David needs to hear it over and over. God is his salvation and no one else. Mm. That's a pretty good model for us to follow when we are in distress. What it says to me is that as well as David knew God, he had doubts. He was not content when he had doubts, so he went directly to God with his doubts, and he recognized that God was his only source of assurance. That's actually encouraging to me. Absolutely. In the next few verses, David prays for the destruction of his enemies, and he invokes the angel of the Lord to chase them and pursue them. So I want to go off on just a quick tangent here, because when we see Lord in all uppercases we do here, it refers to Yahweh the name for God that stresses his eternal presence and commitment to his people. That word was not chosen um, carelessly. It was chosen Mm -hmm. intentionally. David also notes that he has been attacked without cause. um, And he uses that phrase several times. And then he uses the phrase, the angel of the Lord, again, twice as well. So the repetition gives us emphasis, of course, but it also serves the, por- the purpose of pointing us to Jesus, mm-hmm. the true angel of the Lord who was attacked without cause. Mm-hmm. So as I read this, I could think of one or two times in my life when I felt I was blameless, <laughs> um, when a trap had been laid for me without cause. Uh-huh. But as I reflected on it and even perhaps in desperation prayed about it, <laughs> I came to realize I was not so blameless after all. Oh, man, I can relate to that. I mean, don't we all have a tendency to find ourselves blameless most of the time? It, it, it starts in the nursery. You know, he hit me first. Bubba made me do it. We can invent excuses till the cows come home to, to let us feel that self-righteous anger, which excuses us and lifts responsibility from our shoulders. The interesting thing about blame is blame sends the responsibility outward. It's someone else's fault. Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes it is, you know, but we need to be real careful to look at ourselves first and see if we are part of the problem. In this psalm, on the other hand, David seems to be in the place of innocent suffering, pointing once again to Christ. So what does he do? He's like a little child. He calls on the one who can do something about it, the Lord, Yahweh. And basically, he asks God for the biblical principle of reaping and sowing to be applied to his enemies. When he says, may they be caught in their own trap. It's the idea of proportional justice. He's not looking for revenge here. He's looking for proportional justice. And doesn't that happen to us all the time? You know, I don't know about you guys, but man, I have occasionally in my life, probably more than I like to think, woven a tangled web Mm -hmm. and then gotten caught in it myself. Well, Dan, you'll have to tell me about that sometime because I have no um, no experience <laughs> with oh, with anything rough. like that. So, <laughs> I, I like that you distinguish their self-righteous anger from righteous anger. Yes. And that um, we, we tend to fall into one category rather than the other. David is in righteous anger here. He is praying for his en- enemies to fall victim to their own schemes. But importantly, he is not setting the traps himself. As you mentioned, he is leaving that to God. He is leaving that to God, but he is doing some things while he is angry. So let's talk a little bit about what David does. First, he acts with compassion towards his enemies. He does not act on these curses himself, though as the king and with all the resources at his disposal, he has every opportunity to do so. So he does not use his power And we've seen that so many times, especially with Saul and the, the number of times he could have killed him and, and didn't. Yeah. He, he also speaks very honestly mm-hmm. and admits that he is impatient for God to <laughs> act. Yet in his impatience, he remains faithful. He remains faithful, which mm-hmm. is a model I strive to follow mm-hmm. and um, often fall short of that. David wishes to magnify God. And I think it's important that when you magnify something, you don't actually make it any bigger. It stays the same size. It just seems bigger in your field of view. It takes <laughs> up more space in your field of view. Hmm. I never thought about that. That's really true. Magnification of God was one of my self-taught lessons from this whole, uh, from this psalm. Yeah. When we magnify God, we are looking for what, what is important to Him yeah. and not caught in self-righteous right. anger. And then finally, he ends this psalm not with a curse, but with a praise. In verse 28, my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So this psalm is bookended by a request for God's help and praise. But it also is a lesson in how to handle our anger constructively, you know, with compassion, with honesty, admitting where we are with God, magnifying God, praising Those are constructive ways of handling anger. Absolutely right. Yeah. Laura, this is so convicting when I think about how often I get myself in situations where, you know, I've totally blown everything out of proportion because I've put myself at the top instead of somewhere lower down. I've magnified myself. (laughs) Um, How easily I get offended when I make everything about me. Um, When I do that... I'm magnifying my importance, not God's importance. Um, So how can we magnify God? I mean, what are the steps that we should take when we find ourselves in this situation? 
I think for me, the easiest way to magnify God is to just start listing his attributes because they're not words that I would ever use to describe myself. I mean, even in my pride, I would not use these words. (laughs) Omnipotent, omnipresent, majestic, perfect, merciful. And, you know, that list can go on forever. Mm. And what that does for me is it changes that focus. It changes that magnification off of myself and onto God. And my problems become right-sized when they're held up to his power. You know, that's when my weakness becomes his strength. Mm-hmm. So are we ready to move on to Psalm 109? We are, and we'll move through it fairly quickly. Okay. Although I note that it has some of the most vivid language imaginable. It and really is does. <laughs> a great cathartic read for anyone who is truly afflicted by anger. You can, it vibrates with the, the sensation. You can feel David's um how infl- how afflicted he was by anger. So Psalm 109 is considered to be the strongest of the imprecatory psalms, containing about 30 curses, as I mentioned earlier. But I want to focus on David himself. So note that he begins again with asking God to come to his aid. Mm-hmm. Um, that's his starting point. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. He turns to God for help rather than striking out at his enemies. And he does not hold back on what he'd like to see happen to the people who repay him, as he says in verse 5, evil for good and hatred for friendship. Mm -hmm. But again, he doesn't lift a hand to do it himself, even though he suffers greatly. You might say he puts everything out on the table, all his grief and his hardship and his hopes for punishment and justice, and then he returns to praise. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng of worshipers, I will praise him. And with this, we return not only to praise, but to the communal aspect Mm -hmm. of what Psalms are about. Mm -hmm. And one thing I would note is that we keep our anger to ourselves, or we share it so frequently only through our harsh words to one another Mm -hmm. and to our loved ones. And this communal expression of anger and turning to God is a completely different model for can us you, to can follow. Can you imagine our congregation reading Psalm this Psalm 109 in church on Sunday? That <laughs> that would be a surprising picture. Yes, it would. So to to <clears throat> refer back to something you said a, a minute ago, Jan, I think David's prayers, his imprecations to God are a healthy way to handle anger. So even though it seems shocking to make such requests to God, It's also a way that we can intentionally hand over our anger to the one who is holy and just, Mm -hmm. the judge we can fully depend on. Absolutely. Okay, Laura, thank you once again for providing us with a roadmap through challenging topics and helping us to make sense of some of the most perplexing parts of Scripture. Now, we usually end with a question. Do you have a question? I do, and it will come as no surprise that I want to ask everyone to think about how we can magnify God this week. Mm. Lynn gave some very good starting points in, in just in the simple act of um, listing God's attributes, mm-hmm. but I think there are others. How can we magnify God this week and right-size ourselves? Mm-hmm. That is a perfect question, and I think I'm going to leave it there because it's so perfect. Thank you for coming. And friends, until next time.